Chapter 5, The Gospels and Acts The New Testament begins with the four Gospels. Each of these is an account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ while he was on earth. Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. The first is the Greek word for it, and the second is Hebrew. Each gospel overlaps largely with the others, yet is each very unique also. The four gospels are followed by the book of Acts. This records how the disciples spread the kingdom of God after Jesus ascended back into heaven. The gospels. The word gospel simply means good news. While the message about Christ contained in the four Gospels is certainly good news in the common sense of that phrase, in the New Testament Gospels it refers to a particular, long-expected announcement about the Son of God. This is why the most succinct of the Gospels, Mark, begins with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Only a few verses after Jesus himself comes on the scene, he is introduced like this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 1 verses 1, 14 and 15. Everyone in Jerusalem knew the prophecies of Daniel. Everyone knew the 70 weeks of years had to be somewhere close to drawing to a close. Plenty of false messiahs filled the land, claiming that they were the prince to come, the anointed of God. The Roman Empire held Jerusalem and Judea under its rule. It kept a military presence nearby. The Jewish people expected a powerful, political messiah to come in the form of a ruling king, a great national hero. Many expected this guy to lead a revolt and liberate them from Roman occupation. Such views of the coming kingdom were most likely informed by one of Daniel's prophecies. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and that dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and verse 25. The Jewish people in the time of Christ were living with promises and prophecies like this foremost in their mind, while under occupation by Gentile rulers and soldiers. Mark informs us that Jesus arrived on the scene and began telling everyone the good news that the kingdom was at hand. It was time to get ready. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record how Jesus displayed the power of the coming Messiah, but also baffled many of those anticipating his coming. Instead of a political revolution, he offered a kingdom that works from the inside out, calls for a change of heart, repentance, and brings change through service, not coercion. 
The book of Acts picks up where the gospel stories leave off. After Jesus dies and is resurrected, he ascends to heaven. The book of Acts begins here. It records how the apostles and disciples of Christ act as his body, his hands and feet, on earth to grow and expand the kingdom in the way that he trained and empowered them. Why are there four Gospels? Different people have different theories. The Bible itself does not say why. Jesus does say that the apostles would become his witnesses throughout the world, so perhaps it is simply best to see the Gospels as authoritative accounts of the life, work, and message of Jesus Christ, coming from independent lines of testimony. Biblical law says that a matter shall not be established on the testimony of only one witness, Deuteronomy 19.15. In at least two of the gospel writers recite this principle, Matthew chapter 18, verse 16, John chapter 8, verse 17. But it is still not certain that this is the reason. We also note that while the basic story is the same throughout the four accounts, each provides a unique perspective and some unique information. The first gospel in the order of the Bible is Matthew. It begins with a long recounting of the genealogy of Jesus. It aims to demonstrate clearly that he is both a descendant of Abraham and, most importantly, the son of David. This is because God had promised that the Messiah King to come would be a descendant directly of David's. The several stories that follow in the immediate chapters portray Jesus as reliving the life of Israel. He is called the Son of God, like Israel was during the Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. He has to be spared from the murderous ruler who kills all the newborn male children, just like Pharaoh tried to do. He is baptized in the Jordan River like Israel crossed it. He spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted. Israel had spent 40 years in the wilderness being tempted. Whereas Israel had failed, Jesus resists the devil. Just like Israel received a law, the Ten Commandments, Upon Mount Sinai, Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount, a deeper, more spiritual, and more challenging view of the law. All of the Gospels quote from Old Testament prophecies. They all aim to show the fulfillment of prophecies in Christ and in their era. Matthew especially is filled with such references, providing a heavy focus on Old Testament authority. All, nevertheless, contain heavy influence from the Hebrew Bible background, language, and culture. All portray Jesus as the fulfillment of the great hope of Israel, the Messiah and the resurrection of the people of God as free and righteous body of people. Each then sees Jesus in the light of the law and the promises. Each records Jesus demonstrating his unique nature and identity through his miracles, healings, casting out demons, authoritative and powerful teachings, confounding his critics, and fulfilled prophecies. Each portrays him as rejecting the draw of power. When the people witness his miracles, they want to install him as their champion and ruler immediately. They want to use his power as political and military power to destroy their occupiers. Jesus always rejected this, sometimes having to escape from the throngs. 
John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Even Jesus' own disciples did not get it. On his last trip to Jerusalem, even they seemed to think he was about to institute a regime of power. On the very night of his last supper, they began to argue between themselves about who would be the greatest among them in the kingdom. Jesus responded, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as one who serves. Luke chapter 22, verse 25. Earlier in his ministry, he had made it clear to them that his kingdom was one of sacrifice. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Interestingly, the Roman punishment of the cross had factored nowhere into the prophecies or the life of Christ or biblical teaching before this. There was no foreshadowing of this. Yet here, early in his ministry, before the cross of Jesus occurred and before the Gospels were ever written, Jesus is calling his followers to take his cross and follow me. How shocking a message this must have been. Yet even the disciples did not seem to remember it very long. It was, however, the heart of Christ's message. That message is by far most vividly and importantly lived out in the perfect life and perfect sacrifice of Christ himself. When his teachings seemed to be a threat to the Jewish religious leaders of the day, they conspired to turn him over to the Romans as a subversive revolutionary. He was betrayed by the leadership and a mob of the very people he had come to save, based on what they knew was a lie. The Romans obliged. Though they found him not guilty, they executed him anyway to avoid a violent mob. They tortured him through flogging and then executed him in one of history's most painful and horrific inventions, crucifixion, nailed to a cross. Each of the Gospels records this event, as well as his subsequent removal from the cross and burial in a borrowed tomb. Each records that three days after his death, the stone sealing the tomb had been rolled away and Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. He spent several days on earth, appearing to his disciples multiple times, proving to them that it was indeed him. When his time had come, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of empowerment from his spirit. He then ascended into heaven to sit in the heavenly throne room from which he could rule his kingdom through his spirit. In this way, the prophecy of the kingdom in Daniel and other prophets was fulfilled. Jesus was given all power and dominion in a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Likewise, his people would be empowered to share in that rule. But remember, it is a rule of sacrifice and service to God and man, not of power, coercion, or domination. Along these lines, Jesus pronounced certain prophecies of his own. His parables often had prophetic warnings and messages of judgment to come. His most outstanding prophecy was that of the soon coming destruction of the old temple and the city of Jerusalem, for the city was going to reject him and thus reject the deliverance God has sent them. 
They were in fact going to crucify the Holy One who would end the old sacrificial system, not seeing his significance or the symbolic significance of those old sacrifices to begin with. So on his last trip to Jerusalem, before he was crucified, the following event occurred. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 and 2. The rebuilt Jewish temple had taken decades to build. It was a massive structure of stone. It was the center of everything physically, culturally, and spiritually for the Old Covenant Jewish religion at that point. The thought that it would be completely destroyed and dismantled to the last stone must have come as quite a shock to the disciples who were at that very moment admiring it. They inquired of Jesus to tell them more, and he went on to describe a time of unparalleled tribulation. Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. The desolation of destruction prophesied by Daniel would take place. The whole city would be destroyed, and there would be tremendous suffering. He uses an extreme prophetic convention of describing the judgment as the undoing of creation. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Matthew chapter 24, verse 19. And it will be like the days of Noah when the flood came and wiped out all the unrighteous. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 through 39. The righteous believers in Christ would be spared. And all these things, Jesus said, would happen to the generation of people to whom he was speaking at that time. Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. This particular prophecy is so important and central to the coming and mission of Christ that all of the first three Gospels record the whole thing. Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. John is arranged considerably differently, so it does not contain this. He records his own expanded version, however, later in the book of Revelation, as we shall see. At issue is nothing less than the central role of Christ himself. He was to come and save his people from their sins. In doing so, he was the fulfillment of everything promised since the promise of a Savior and seed to Eve and to Abraham. He was also the fulfillment of everything for which the sacrificial system and old temple had stood. They were not only no longer needed, but to cling to them in some kind of sentimental conservatism would now be a form of rejection of God and blasphemy against the Savior himself. It was God's decree since Daniel that this old system would have to go. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Daniel chapter 9 verse 26. Many of the other prophets had declared similar things. True to their words and true to the predictions of Jesus about the length of the rest of that generation past, 40 years. It was like 40 more years of Israel wandering faithlessly through the wilderness. When the time was fulfilled, Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem. Tensions had escalated since AD 66 over a tax revolt 
and a Jewish-Roman war had broken out. By AD 70, the Romans had enough. They sieged the city, starved it, and then broke through. They massacred millions, burning the entire city, and did exactly what Jesus said would happen. They destroyed the temple down to the last block. Not one stone was left upon another. The book of Acts. During that 40-year generation, Jesus was also busy setting up the new temple for his kingdom. It would be a living temple made of living stones. This history of the early church getting off the ground is recorded in the book of Acts. It was written by the same writer as the Gospel of Luke. The two books make a seamless narrative together. Three main things stand out in the book of Acts. First, the apostles became witnesses of Christ's resurrection to the whole inhabited world at the same time. Second, Jesus sends the Spirit to consecrate the body of believers at his new temple. Third, the kingdom of God grows and becomes international and multi-ethnic, not just Jewish. First, we know that the apostles were called to be witnesses of the truth of Christ. The book of Acts starts off with Christ meeting with his apostles in the moments before his ascension into heaven. He tells them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The rest of the book of Acts records exactly this. The apostles and the other disciples preach his truth, make converts, and establish communities of believers in Jerusalem, then the larger land of Judea, then Samaria, the northern kingdom, and then throughout all of the inhabited Roman Empire at the time. Second, also as Jesus said in that same statement, he would send his spirit upon them to empower them for this worldwide mission. Acts records this event in the second chapter. The imagery in the event that occurs is astounding. When 120 of the disciples were gathered praying in an upper room in the existing stone temple, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. It sounded like a rushing wind filling the room. What appeared to be tongues of fire lit above each of their heads, and they all began speaking in a multitude of languages in a miraculous display of the Spirit's power. Two things are notable about this event. First, the temple of God had always been a place inhabited by the literal Spirit of God. The tabernacle under Moses had the Spirit. The temple of Solomon had his presence. When, however, the Israelites had returned from exile and rebuilt the second temple, God never consecrated it with his Spirit's presence. It was a widely known fact at the time. The Jewish rulers and priests continued their rituals and sacrifices, but it was a widely known fact that the central point of the temple, God's presence, had never returned. It was for the prior five or so centuries just an empty shell of a temple. With Acts chapter 2 and the event called the Day of Pentecost, God finally sends his spirit to inhabit his temple it is not, however, the old stone building. It was the body of Christ made of living stones, the people themselves. The apostles later teach these things explicitly. Our bodies are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. 
and the collective body of believers is a spiritual house made of living stones. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. The second notable thing about the event on Pentecost was the disciples speaking in multiple foreign languages. This speaking was miraculous, no doubt. Its significance is even more important than its miraculous nature. Pentecost was a large festival. Jews from all over the Roman Empire and beyond attended. Because of the captivity and dispersions for centuries prior, many of these Jews had been raised in foreign lands. While they likely spoke the universal languages of Greek or Latin to get around when traveling, many of them also likely were raised speaking local foreign languages as well. Thousands of such people were attending the festival when this event took place. When the disciples started preaching spontaneously in multiple languages, people were astounded. Peter seized the opportunity to announce the fulfillment of prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus. Many of these people believed that very day. They no doubt left and carried their new faith and information back home with them across the Mediterranean world. This event leads to the third major point that stands out in Acts. The kingdom grew to become an international kingdom, not just a Jewish one. God's promises always intended to have international reach. Even Israel and the law were intended to have an international impact and mission. But the Israelites mostly kept them as their own blessing as an entitled people. This lent itself to a mentality of superiority. The event at Pentecost shattered the idea of exclusivity. The outworking of the kingdom throughout the book of Acts gradually develops its international nature. Peter himself, who normally refused even to enter the homes or eat with Gentiles, learned a powerful lesson from God himself about their acceptance. Acts chapter 10. This reality caused tremendous tensions in the earliest church. It appears in some of the later letters, as we shall see, as a point the apostle had to resolve theologically and socially. But Christ, through his church, was already definitively shattering it very early in Acts. By the 11th chapter of Acts, the locus of apostolic authority and the headquarters of church missions had shifted from Jerusalem itself to the Gentile city of Antioch in Syria. It is at this point we read, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. In other words, the very name Christian as an identity did not appear until the movement was established in an international setting. This was to be the new normal, or rather, it was finally as God had always intended it to be. Conclusion The purpose of the Gospels is to be a witness to the life and work of Jesus the Messiah. Part of this meant showing he was the prophesied Savior to come. Part of it meant showing that his death, resurrection, and ascension paid for the sins of God's people and provides for all believers the same reward in him. Partly it provides a clear mark to the end of the old covenant system. Part of that also means that the judgments prophesied for God's enemies were to fall upon that generation which rejected and delivered Christ to be crucified.
we see Christ as both the fulfillment of prophecy and as a prophet himself. He reaffirmed the prophecies of Daniel, Isaiah, and many others in warning of the destruction of the old temple. Jesus stated it in graphic terms and predicted it within one generation. At the hands of the Roman armies, that prediction came to pass in AD 70. As the drama unfolded, Jesus empowered his people to form and live out a new covenant. As we shall see in the next letters of Paul, this life is to be one of service and love to God and to one another. It is now an international mission. The book of Acts records the earliest years of how Jesus brought this to pass through his apostles. As the church grew, the need for organization and direction grew as well. The apostles began writing letters to provide authoritative answers to questions and problems that arose. They also provide encouragement and wisdom for the fledgling church, lessons that still guide and direct us in fundamental ways today. In the next chapter, we begin looking at those timeless letters.